For some of you, it's your first time. For others, it is not. But for today, I would like to welcome you all to Epic Realms. Friends and enemies, heroes and villains, welcome to Epic Realms. Our guest today is a New York Times bestselling author and award winner. She wrote the Paranormalcy series, Conqueror's Saga, Slayer, the list goes on and on. Her new book, Hide and Star Wars Patabon, are available for pre-order. Welcome to the show, Kirsten White. Hello. Hi, thank you for having me. How are you doing today? I'm, you know... I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit losing my mind, but we're holding it together. You, uh, you've got a lot of books out there. Like you've, you're a busy person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have, so I have, uh, 18 books on shelves and then in the next five months, I'm adding four more. So it's a little, there's always, there's always something that I am not doing that I should be doing. <laughs> well, you're here. That's good enough for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So now I, I found out that you always wanted to be an author since you were little. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. First grade, um, we had a career day and it was, a uh, it was, a very, very rigid, um, binary. All the boys did firemen and all the girls did nurses. And I told the teacher, I'm like, I'm leaving the hat off of my nurse. Cause she's not a nurse. She's a writer and a mom. Um, and so, you know, did it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I, um, I wrote a lot of poetry in high school that was all about um, the people I wanted to date who didn't want to date me. And it was really, really good. And then I got a degree in college, English literature with an emphasis in editing. And then once I graduated, I finally sat down and committed to writing a book from start to finish. Um, it was terrible, but it taught me that I could do it and um, kept at it. Yeah, so I think my first book came out when I was 26 or 27. Um, but yeah, it's, it's what I always wanted to do. And I feel really, really lucky that, you know, it worked out. That seems like an ongoing theme with a lot of authors. They say, we, I wrote my first book and it was horrible, mm -hmm. but like, if you don't do that, you, you don't get, you know, you don't move on. So you gotta, you gotta sit down and write that first book. Is that accurate? Yeah. yeah. I mean, which isn't to say that you can't get it right with a first book. One of my best friends is Stephanie Perkins and her first novel that she finished writing was Anna and the French Kiss, which is also her first published novel. Um, but for me, it really was, I needed to commit, because um, it's really easy to say, I'm going to write a book or I'm going to be a writer, but until you actually sit down and try, you can't fail, right? right. But you also can't succeed. <laughs> and yeah. so for me, it was, it was proving to myself that I could, in fact, sit down and write a book from start to finish. And then that started me on the process of, okay, I have this now. What do I do with it? Researching agents and publishing and figuring out how to edit myself. Um, and then eventually 
finding the young adult genre, which is uh, what I started out in, what, what most of my books are in, um, that felt like the right fit to me at the time. Um, but it was actually the fourth Finnish novel that I wrote that was my first published novel. Okay. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think sometimes it's one of those things that you just have to fail at before you can succeed. Right. But the other nice thing about writing is it's never a waste because you learn something from everything that you write and you take something forward with you. Like I've reworked some of those old ideas or I've taken scenes or characters that I loved. Um, so for me, like honestly, even though I have probably eight or nine finished novels that have never been published now at this point, none of them feel like a waste to me. And none of them feel, I don't feel bad about that. Yeah. Like it's just part of the process. Did you ever come to a point where you, you were questioning whether or not that was what you were going to do or what you wanted to do? Or were you always like, this is it. There's never a looking, look over your shoulder and think there might be something else that you need to do. Yeah, no. Um, for me, it was really just those early days where I was querying, trying to find an agent and getting a lot of rejection. My my two um, oldest kids were very young and it was kind of a rough period of time. Um, you know, we were living in an apartment. I didn't have a car. My kids weren't easy. Um, and I had had a, a book that I got an agent for that went out on submission to publishers and that nobody wanted it. Um, so I really did say to my spouse at one point, I was like, I think if this next one doesn't work, I'm just going to, I'm just going to table this for a while because it's too much rejection. <laughs> it hurts too much to continually, you know, be hoping for this thing and putting yourself out there and getting rejected. And I also had some personal things going on that, that just felt like this tsunami of being rejected by the universe. Um, and fortunately, the book that I was working on at that point was Paranormal C. And, and I think I almost needed to get to that stage in order to write that book because before that I was writing more what I felt like I should be writing like um what what people wanted yeah and with paranormalcy I really gave myself permission to write as myself um it was a you know a paranormal romance in the heyday of twilight but I also made fun of paranormal romances um, I was very silly and very um very goofy and a lot of humor, which you didn't see a lot in right. that particular genre of young adult books at the time. They took themselves very seriously. Well, it kind of set you apart from the other. Yeah, books yeah, as well. and that and that's what worked. Is it hit? Well, Twilight was super popular, but people are also starting to get kind of tired of it. So it was this perfect mix of it participated in paranormal romance, but at the same time, it also said this is absurd. Um, I don't think I could sell it now. Like, and that's the that's the thing you realize about publishing is. A lot, you know, obviously a lot of it is, is hard work and dedication, but a lot of it is luck and timing yeah. and maybe whatever you're pursuing, this isn't the right time for it. It doesn't mean it'll never be the right time for it. Um, like Hyde, I started, I want to, I want to say I started writing it like two and a half or three years before I sold it. Um, but it, personally for me, it wasn't the right time to write it yet. So I kept, I kept putting it on pause, coming back to it, putting it on pause, coming back to it until finally it felt like the right time to write it. Were there any other books that you kind of did that where you sat down and you're like, you know, I should hold off on this? Or was that a learning experience where you're like, oh, I should maybe wait on some of these? Yeah. I mean, I also, I always have some ideas that are kind of like backburnered in my head um, where I either feel like it's not the right time market-wise to write them or personally to write them. Um, sometimes it's that I feel like I'm not ready as a writer to write them. So actually the two, um, the two best examples of that are Hyde and then also Wretched Water Park, which is my first um, middle grade series. This one comes out in June. 
Um, and I actually started out wanting to be a middle grade writer, but I wasn't good enough for it. Middle grade is harder to write than young adult and even adult. Um, and so Wretched Water Park was an idea, again, similar to Hyde, where I had the idea. I started a draft of it about three years before I finally was able to commit to it and write it. Um, and so for me, I just keep open documents and I add things and I add notes. Um, and I, I kind of trust at this point that eventually I will get there. If it's an idea that has legs, if it's an idea that has teeth, um, eventually the right time to write it will come. Uh, so I don't, I don't, I don't worry about it the way that I used to. Like if this doesn't work now, it's never going to work. I don't feel that way anymore. You mentioned uh, middle grade. Can you mm -hmm. for for our listeners, because some of our listeners might not know the difference between like middle grade or YA, yeah, yeah, yeah. young adult, I guess, and stuff like that. Could you just quickly kind of explain to them the differences between those? Yeah, absolutely. So there are a lot of age designations in publishing, particularly in children's publishing. Um, so you've got like picture books, you've got early readers, which are designed for like emerging independent readers, chapter books, which are slightly longer, but again, aimed toward like first, second grade, where they're really starting to develop that reading fluency. And then you have middle grade, which is aimed at about like eight to 12 year olds. So like a series of unfortunate events or, um, the Wings of Fire series, those types of books that, that are designed to engage um, fluent readers who aren't ready for like maybe more intense content. Um, and so for me, that's where I want to start out wanting to write. Um, and then young adult is generally considered like 12 and up. Um, it's aimed at teenagers, but the majority of young adult readers are adults, which <laughs> affects a lot of the content and a lot of the types of storytelling that you see in YA because you do always have to engage with the fact that most of your readers are not teenagers they're adults mm -hmm. um which which is good and bad like it's awesome that so many adults have realized like this is a really fun and engaging um area of storytelling some of the hallmarks of YA um young adult literature uh, they're very fast-paced they uh, you can't really be self-indulgent um in the same way of like you know like a ponderous fantasy series tome where they take so much time with the world building and the politics and like really, really get into it. Like they'll spend a whole chapter on the history of farming in this region and how it's affected the magic system. And like, that's awesome. But in YA, in your primary audience is teenagers. And if they're bored, they're going to put down your book and they're going to walk away. Um, and then also with YA, because your characters are teens, one of the other hallmarks is an undercurrent of hope. Um, you want to engage with, you know, heavy, dark things. You can, you can engage with really dark, um, heavy things, but you always want to have that sort of undercurrent of hope, acknowledging that your characters are young. They're at the beginning of their lives, which is why you see a lot of like, like the dystopian, like a teenager really can change the world. Right. Um, and so, so, so yeah, that's middle grade and young adult. And then obviously adult is everything else right, right um but yeah yeah it's and it's and it's interesting because they all have slightly different mechanics and the way that you tell a story um the way that you approach themes the way that you um engage with certain content or topics right. uh for example in the sinister summer series which is wretched water park is the first book in that series um they're scary but everything is always softened with humor right, and right. i never ever put the kids in physical peril because that was important to me as a mom. I have an eight-year-old. He's this just tender, loving, little goth weirdo. Um, his whole room is decorated with skeletons. And so, um, you know, I very much wrote it with him in mind where okay. 
where there's conflict and there are problems, but I never wanted the kids to be like, like threatened with violence or, or things like that. Is there and more you, influence that your kids have? Like as they get older, you start to write more material that's more geared that you think they would like or things that like, say they go to school and they learn about something and you look into it and you're like, I want to write about that. Does that have an influence on what you write? Not really. No? Um, no. Because once my kids are teenagers, they don't care about what I write anymore. <laughs> They're like, mom, we don't care. Uh, my eight-year-old still thinks it's cool and wants to read my books, but my teenagers don't actually read my books at all, which okay. is fine. And I don't encourage them to. Yeah. Um, I did. There was this one time that I felt like a creep. I was at a Starbucks and there were these teenagers from a local high school and they were talking about this game at their school, like this school-wide game. And I'm listening to it. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing plot for a YA rom-com. And so I actually interrupted them and I'm like, I'm so sorry. Can you please explain to me the logistics of this game and how it works? And they were like, okay. And so they told me about it and I was like, thank you. And then I made sure I left immediately so that they didn't, so that they could continue talking without having this, you know, 30 something year old woman listening and being like, I'm going to take notes on this. Um, I mean, I haven't written that book yet, but, but yeah, it is, it is interesting. Um, but yeah, I try, I try to not involve them as much as possible in my professional life. Um, you'll never see pictures of them on my social media. Um, I generally don't even think them by name in my books anymore, just because I want them to have that degree of separation. So yeah. it's up to them to choose how much they engage with um, author Kirsten White versus their mom. Right. That makes sense. That makes mm -hmm. sense. Um, so in all of your books, there seems to be something that is a, is a running occurrence in all of them. And I had to bring it up because I've seen it in reviews. Mm -hmm. I've seen it uh, uh, in people talking about it on online and I've seen it in your new book and that's some amazing dialogue. <laughs> what, what is it that, what is it that makes dialogue something that seems to come natural to you as opposed to, you know, other forms of writing? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I do love dialogue and I feel like dialogue is is my greatest strength. Um, I was able to recently write a short story that was entirely dialogue, which has always been a goal of mine. Um, and I was like, it was amazing because I don't like description. I work very, very hard at description. Um, I add more and more in every single draft. But for me, dialogue is what comes the most natural and the easiest. And I think it's because um, you'll hear a lot of authors talk about how they see their books playing out like movies um, and they're describing what they're seeing. I'm not a visual person. My books are words. That's all they are. Mm -hmm. Like if you ask me to describe my characters, I can tell you what descriptors I use in the book, but I don't see them in my head. I don't see any right. of it in my head. It's, it's entirely words. And so I think because of that dialogue for me is the easiest way to convey who these characters are and, and you know, how they move through the world, how they see the world, how they engage with each other. Um, so yeah, I love writing dialogue. If I had my way, my books would be just like, formless disembodied voices floating in an empty black void having like sparkling <laughs> conversations um but I do fortunately have friends who help me and every time they read a draft they're like what does the room look like what are they wearing right. what are they eating what are they hearing I'm like fine I will build the world around them there was actually uh, a there was actually a article that I had read because my wife is very much like that she can't picture like if she closes yeah. her eyes and you're like 
you know, describe to me what an apple looks like, close your eyes and picture it. She's like, I, it, it, it's an apple. Mm -hmm. Like she can't describe anything. Whereas I'm very visual. So like mm -hmm. if I close my eyes, I can picture, I can make up stuff and I can picture it in my mind, but she can't. And they actually have, there was a, an article on how some people can visualize things and mm -hmm. other people can't. And the people who can need to stop, you know, harking on people that can't because they literally, that's just the way their brain works. And so that's really <laughs> interesting from an author that your mind works like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and that that is actually what helps make a lot of the dialogue really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It also makes it interesting though, too, because books don't scare me. Um, like I love horror. I love reading horror. Um, but it's because I enjoy it and I enjoy the storytelling and I enjoy the, the tropes in horror. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't actually scare me or disturb me. And so when people are like, I want horror book recommendations, I'm like, I don't think you want me to give them to you <laughs> because I just don't really have a good gauge of like how scary things are, which you know, can also be a problem when people ask me about my own books. They're like, how scary is it? I'm like, I don't know. But it's also when you're writing horror, um, like when you're writing a romantic scene um, or like a flirting scene, you can give yourself butterflies, right? right. Um, but when you're writing horror, you know all of the pieces that are going into it. And so you surprise yourself as the author, um, which also makes it difficult to scare yourself as the author because you see all of the moving parts and you know everything that's going into it and you know where everything is going. And so it's very hard to gauge um, at least for myself and and you know other authors that I've talked to who've written certain things, it's very difficult to gauge how scary what you're writing actually is because you don't experience it in the same way that the reader does. Right. Yeah. Well, you speaking of scary, it's not really super scary, but you wrote a series, uh, and I and I, I mostly bring this up because I know a lot of our listeners are fans of the Buffy series. Yes. So I'm really curious and I, and I got to ask, and if you've been asked this a million times before, I'm sorry, but how did you end up with that? Did they come to you? Did you go to them? Like, how do you get the okay to do something yes. like that with the Slayer series? That's actually one of my favorite book deal stories. So he's talking about Slayer. It's a book set in the Buffy verse um, featuring a new Slayer. And um, so several years ago, I went to Comic-Con. I live in San Diego. So I'm at Comic-Con almost every year. Um, and I was wearing a Sunnydale High School t-shirt. And while I was at Comic-Con wearing the Sunnydale High School t-shirt, I met up with a friend who's also an author and we met up with her editor and her editor's like, oh, I love your shirt. I love Buffy. I'm like, oh, obviously I also love Buffy. So we had this nice, just like five minute conversation about how much we love Buffy. And that was that. Um, fast forward like three or four years later, out of the blue, we get an email from her that she's just gotten the rights um, to do an all new YA series set in the Buffyverse. And I was the first person that she thought of because I was wearing a Sunnydale High School t-shirt at Comic-Con. So I joke, I'm probably the only author who's ever gotten a book deal from a t-shirt. Um, but, but I think it's also a really good example of like, I'm open about the things that I love and I talk about the things that I love and I'm not afraid to be like, you know, this is, this is a fandom of mine. I think it's really exciting storytelling um, because you never know what opportunities are gonna come up. Um, and that, yeah, the Slayer books were really fun because it was at a time where not much was happening with the rights. So I had a lot of storytelling freedom. Um, 
I basically got to do whatever I wanted, which, you know, which is not very common when you're writing in licensed properties. Um, usually there are a lot, there's a lot more structure and a lot more rules. Um, but, but in terms of Slayer, I really got to just sort of create my own corner with the Buffyverse, which was fun because, um, Buffy was one of my first fandoms. It was very formative for me as a storyteller, you know, acknowledging that, you know, we've since right. learned that the creator Joss Whedon had a lot of, a lot of abusive dynamics going on in the show, which is really disappointing. Um, but I don't think takes away from the tremendous work that the writers and the producers and the actors did on right. that show. Um, but yeah, so it was fun to get to sort of cut my teeth on writing for a licensed property in a world that influenced who I was as a storyteller so much. Was that one of your, and, and I don't know for a fact, was that one of your first real tie-in tie-in stories to, to another universe? Yeah, yeah. I think that was actually my very first, um, my very first sort of licensed property that I worked for was, was Slayer, which was a great one to start out with. Um, the Buffy fandom is fantastic. They're super... Um, they're super dynamic. It's really nice to be part of a fandom that's based around an incredibly powerful young woman because you don't get a lot of people who hate women in that fandom. Right. <laughs> um, so on and so forth. So yeah, it was it was really fun. And and the nice thing about Buffy, like you were talking about with horror and humor, is Buffy is such a marriage of those two, right? right? Um, the the balancing the action and the scary with with not only humor, but also very real emotional stakes, which is, you know, why I loved it and what was so fun about getting to write in that world. Right. Definitely. You also have a series and we mentioned a little bit off, off air before we got started and that's the Camelot Rising, which is kind of also, it's, it's tied into the Arthurian legend mm -hmm. and it's from Guinevere's point of view. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Tell us a little um, bit yeah. about that. The art on it, by the way, is fantastic. Uh, I, I see it and I'm like, God, that's a gorgeous cover. Yes. Yeah. So the artist is Alex Dos Diaz. He's fantastic. And the cover designer on those books um, is named Regina Huath. I actually worked with her on a lot of my YA books and she's wonderful. And I always love getting covers because I have nothing to do with it. They, they learn very early on at my publishers not to even ask me for input. Because <laughs> again, I'm not a visual person. Right. Um, so yeah, those books... Um, I've actually done a few retellings over the last few years. I did a historical retelling of Vlad the Impaler um, with the Anti-Darken trilogy and then um, and then the Camelot Rising trilogy and the Dark Summers with Frankenstein were all retellings. Um, and for me, retellings stem from two things. They stem from a deep love of the source material, in this case, Arthurian legend, and also something about the source material that really makes me angry. Um, and in this case, it's particularly the, tr the traditional Arthurian stories just treat their women characters so poorly. Right. Just so, so poorly. Like there are so many really interesting, intriguing things there. And there are so many quirky, weird, weird stories that we got from, you know, the, the really old Arthuriana stuff. Um, but, but they treat the women badly. And even modern updates tend to... Um, not do right by Guinevere. Some of them do, but most of them don't. And that bothered me. And so I thought, well, I'm going to take these two things. I'm going to take my love of Arthurian tropes and these sort of Arthurian archetypal figures and also my anger at how they treat Guinevere and how, um, you know, they, they treat women in general. And I'm going to write a trilogy to reclaim that. Yeah. So, so yeah, it was, um, those were also fun books to write because I had come off of writing um, very, very heavily, heavily researched um, sort of historical fiction, 
low fantasy. Um, there are no fantasy elements, but it is gender swap. So it's like alternate history. Um, and those just were thousands and thousands of pages of research and just really, really intense to write. And so with the um, Camelot Rising trilogy, I was like, I just want to go hang out in Camelot for a few hundred pages. Right. Definitely. Well, and speaking of like, we're having a talking about a book where you took this previous fiction and you kind of modified it. Mm-hmm. Another series you have, The Dark Descent of Elizabeth Frankenstein. Yeah. Which yeah. I read the premise and I was like, that sounds really cool of an idea. <laughs> yeah. how, how did you get how did you get that? Did you, was that just something that you came up with or did they say, hey, do you want to do you want to write something X, Y, Z? Yeah, that was another one that came about in kind of an interesting way. Um, I'm copying that one here too. So, so this one um, looks like skin. It's so creepy. Um, so it was the year before the 200th anniversary of the publication of Frankenstein. And my editor, who I had worked with on the Conqueror's trilogy, the, the Emily Darkin books, um, great relationship with her. I still work with her. She's doing my middle grade series. Love her. Um, she came to me and she was like, hey, it's the 200th anniversary of the publication of Frankenstein. We would love to have a Frankenstein retelling, um, but they were a little bit down to the wire. And so there weren't very many authors they could go to who could actually, you know, write a book in time for it to be published the next year. And so they were like, do you have any interest in writing a retelling of Frankenstein. And I was like, that's my favorite classic novel. Um, I would absolutely love to do this. And they, but that was all, they, they just wanted a Frankenstein retelling. They didn't have any sort of like, there was no outline, there was no pitch. It was just, okay. is this something you're interested in doing? Um, and so I, I really went back to um, obviously Frankenstein, um, but particularly Mary Shelley's life. And, and the thing that kind of sparked the idea for the dark son of Elizabeth Frankenstein, which follows the same events of the book Frankenstein, but from the point of view of Elizabeth Lavenza, who is the foundling child that the Frankensteins take in to be a companion for Victor and then eventually his doomed bride. Um, when I was reading the introduction to the, the reprint issue of Frankenstein that came out um, about 12 or 14 years after the original, and Mary Shelley was talking about um, the writing of Frankenstein and how it all came about. And at this point she knew that the book was successful, right? It had, I mean, there were newspaper articles about it. There were stage productions of it. It wasn't one of those slow burn books that became famous a hundred years after her death. Like it was a big deal and she knew it was. And even then in her intro, she put herself in a supporting character role. And she really focused on her her um, late husband, Percy Shelley, who was a terrible, terrible person and I hate him. And if there is a hell and I go to it, I will find him and I will fight him. Um, and, and I just thought who, how, like what happened in her life and what, what was her life with him like that even in the face of, of demonstrable success, she still saw herself as secondary to him. Um, and that really informed who my depiction of Elizabeth Lavenza was, that, you know, as, as, a, as a survival mechanism, she, she put herself second to Victor always and, and became exactly who he needed her to be um, in order to survive and in order to keep herself safe. Um, that one was just like, a super fun book to write. I spent about a month writing a, an epistolary novel like the like the original is before realizing like the reason why we don't write epistolary novels anymore is because it's a boring format. <laughs> and then um, 
and you know, it was a very tight time frame. I had about three or four months to write the book. And at this point I was three months in because I had done two months of research and then a month of working on this draft that didn't work. So I emailed my editor and I was like, hey, so I'm about a hundred pages in, they're not gonna work, I'm throwing them all away. Don't worry about it, it's fine, goodbye. <laughs> um, and then I took what I had and at that point, I knew the characters. I knew who Elizabeth was. I knew her voice. Um, I didn't have to do much plotting because it follows the events of Frankenstein. So Mary Shelley very, very graciously plotted it all for me. Right. Um, and I just like sat outside in the beautiful San Diego sunshine watching my beautiful children play and like type murder for, um, you know, a few hundred pages. And I wrote the draft of The Dark Sun of Elizabeth Frankenstein as it exists now in, a, I think, six or seven days. Um but I was just, I was just so in it. I was just so immersed in it and just living and breathing it. It was one of my very favorite drafting experiences. And I'm so proud of that book too. Cause you know, you always hope books will become what you're trying to make them when you're writing them. And yeah. most of them get there. Some of them don't like, I won't say which one, um, but there's definitely like one of my books in my, in my publishing past where I'm like, mm, I never got there with that one. Um, but with the dark son of Elizabeth Frankenstein, I really, I got what I wanted. Um, and yeah, I, I love that book. And it was my first foray into horror. Um, it actually won a Bram Stoker horror award. Um, for the young adult category. And, and horror is a genre that I love, but I came very late to it. Um, it wasn't really storytelling that I was allowed to access growing up. And so um, that's another, it was my first time giving myself permission to really, to really commit to horror, um, which then I think gave me a lot of confidence later moving on into Hyde. Right, definitely. Um, well, let's talk about Hyde. Since we're here, let's talk about Hyde. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's awesome. So we talked earlier about the differences between middle grade, YA, and adult. And this is, if I'm not mistaken, your first really adult book. It is. Yeah. Was it that is my difficult first... when you were writing it to go, okay, well, like, was there a point where you were writing it and it was like, oh, this is kind of young adult. And then um, you, you're like, wait, nope, I should probably, like, how did that work? Did you yeah. do it ahead of time? or? So here's the secret. I read a lot of adult novels, adult fantasy, adult horror, and I think, meh, it's the same as YA. Um, people have this idea that there's some big dividing line between them. There's really not. Um, the, I mean, there are certain things that you might do in YA that don't show up as often in adult, um, like first person, present point of view, um, the pacing, but, but really, there are just a few things that separate them. And so for me with Hyde, I actually found it very, very freeing to be writing an adult novel and not have to take into consideration um, that younger readers were going to be reading this, not have to take in con into consideration that the, the undercurrent of hope that I talked about earlier with right. YA, um, I got to be angry in this book and I loved it. It was so, so freeing. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, one, like I mentioned, I, I kind of had a lot of stops and starts with it. I got the idea um, in the way that I always get ideas. Uh, it came from a few different places. For a long time, I had been wanting to write um, some retellings of Greek myths, but um, engaging with them on a very realistic level where you're like, this story is genuinely horrifying. Um, 
And then I also read an article about the Nascondino International Hide and Seek Competition, which was set one year in an abandoned Italian resort town. So it was this resort town they made in Italy. Um, it never took off. And so it kind of was like half finished and abandoned. And I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds so murdery, right? right. Like, how are people not being murdered in this? But then it turns out like it's, there were all sorts of rules and there were time limits and you ran and jumped onto a mattress and like it, you know, the actual thing was not as creepy as it was in my head. Right. Um, but, you know, I kind of held both of those things. And then one day I was like, oh, that's the same idea. Um, the one of these Greek myth, myth retellings and engaging with the idea of the Minotaur and how we willingly sacrifice our children generation after generation so that we don't have to deal with consequences of our own generation's actions. Um, and then a hide and seek competition. Right. Uh, and so I created an abandoned amusement park. Um, I invited 14, 20 somethings to come compete for $50,000 in a hide and seek competition. And then I started thinking through the logistics of how would that actually work? Who would agree to do something like that? Why would, you know, why would somebody want them to come do this? You know, right. what, what is the sinister undercurrent here? Um, because for me, this book was really engaging with anger and with anger that I feel as an American, with anger that I feel as a mother, um, looking at the things that my kids have had to deal with. Uh, I mean, we've got kids who from kindergarten on have to do active shooter drills in school. And yeah. I mean, it's it's bonkers. It's it's baffling. It's maddening to realize that we as a society have looked at that and said, that's OK. We would rather have that than clean up our mess. And so um, it was really nice to be able to write a book from a place of anger rather than from a place of like hope and possibility. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, and you know, that for me, horror tells the truth, right? That's what I love about the horror genre is there are so many things in life that, that we look away from and horror says, don't look away, look closer. Yeah. And so, um, I really, really loved writing Hyde and I love not having the structure of, of young adult literature or writing for younger readers imposed on it. Um, yeah, once I finally got around to writing it, because it was, it was like, I would, I would start to write it, but then I would have another project in YA come up. And it's hard when you're a working author to say no to things that are paying you at the moment, right? right. Like if you're doing well in something, it's very scary to branch out into something else that you don't know whether or not it will end up paying off. Like maybe you'll spend six months working on something that won't sell, you know, that's six months that you didn't get paid for. Right. Um, but when the world shut down in 2020, I didn't have the emotional energy to work on something new um, because I feel like you have to have a certain level of stability to be able to be creative. And um, I was really drained. I was having to homeschool my youngest, um, all, you know, all the things that everybody went through. Right. right. Um, and so that was my time where I finally said, OK, this is this is the pause Everything has been put on pause. I'm going to work on those two ideas that I've had for so long that I love that I've never had time for guess what? I have time for them now. And so I wrote Wretched Water Park from start to finish and I sold that. And then I wrote, um, I, I refined the first hundred pages of Hyde and sent that out as a pitch and a partial. Um, Cause it kind of at that point was like, I love this idea so much, but I cannot keep investing time in it unless I know I'm going to get paid for it. Um, and so we sent that one out. And fortunately editors were really excited about it. And uh, my dream editor, Trisha Narwani at Del Rey, um, was as excited about it as I was. Um, she's phenomenal. I love working with her. Uh, so yeah, Hyde has been one of those, like, 
I was so scared of it for so long, but once I finally gave myself permission to commit to it, it just, it all worked out. Oh, the irony. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, this is the year I'm either going to sell middle grade or adult. And then I sold both and now I have way too much work, but you know what? It's good work. So when you're going through and you're, you're designing something like this story and you have to deal with certain logistics, like, Hey, how do we get it? So they don't have access to their cell phones Yeah. or, or, you know, how do they, you know, technology just in general, you have to deal with that when writing yeah. a story in the modern world in a thing where they're kind of trapped, like, you know, it's got that trapped feeling. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's out in the open, but they're trapped. Uh, how do you, yeah. how do you deal with like, how did you come up with those ideas? Did you have to talk to people and say, Hey, how could I do this? Or, you know, did you just come up with stuff on your own? Did you have to do a lot yeah. of research? Yeah. I mean, man, cell phones made horror writing so much harder <laughs> for everyone. Um, yeah, I think it was just, you know, I had been thinking about it for so, so long. And I thought through the logistics of the game, um, the setting. And then, you know, there were so many elements that went into it, like like um, reality TV, right? Yeah. The weirdness of reality TV and sort of the voyeuristic aspects of that. I was like, I want to capture that in a book. So I want to have a very close focus on these 14 characters, which is a large cast. Um, so it was important to me to be able to make each of them distinct so that you cared. Um, but yeah, just that sense of like, we're watching this all happen and they all agreed to participate. Um, I think that, I think that agreement is so important because they, you know, they signed on for this, they agreed. And once you agree to one thing, well, we agreed to do this. So I guess it's okay if we don't have access to our phones and I guess it's okay if we can't leave the park and I guess it's okay if it doesn't actually seem like we're being filmed and I guess it's okay, you know, so on and so forth, which I think is the way that a lot of people get trapped in really terrible situations, right? It's that gradual, like you, you know, something's off, but you don't know what's off and then you start getting embarrassed and second guessing yourself like yeah. um the slow you know. gradual build to that yeah yeah exactly and so that that was really what I kind of played into um building this world and building the setup of Hyde and how it all worked was um just this combination of things that I love like the or, or things that I things that I think are you know bonkers like reality tv i think reality tv is so creepy and says so much of us about us as a culture um and so really kind of playing into that but also playing into this um you know i'm sure i'm sure you have the same thing where you know you're of a certain generation and and you feel like you have to turn everything you love into an in, into a revenue stream right like my kids high school had some class on like how to turn your hobbies into something that makes money and i'm like no <laughs> don't, don't, they're so young they're gonna have to do that eventually let right. them just be teenagers yeah. um but just this idea that like in a lot of ways you end up having to sell yourself in order to have a shot at at stability at you know fame at love at whatever these people want because they all go into the park wanting different things um and you know as an author there's always that line, right? You have to be public. You have to be on social media. How much of yourself are you willing to commodify in order to make it as a person, in order to make it as an artist? Um, and, you know, those are questions that don't have answers, right? Yeah. But they're always really interesting to explore with a bunch of characters trapped in an abandoned amusement park. <laughs> right. Were any of your previous books, you know, we talked about, we talked about Slayer and we talked about Frankenstein, the, the, mm -hmm. um, 
dark descent, sorry, brain fart. Uh, was there any elements, because we mentioned some of those have some little horror elements. Was there anything mm-hmm. you learned from those books that were really helpful for writing Hyde? Um, hmm. I'm trying to think specifically. I just feel like I learned so much from every book that I write. Like it's a constant, it's, it's actually what I love about being an author and being a writer is it's a never ending sequence of leveling up basically. Um, and there is no, there's no ceiling. There's no, there, I hope that there is no point I ever get to where I can just sort of write on autopilot and it feels easy. Like I always want it to be a challenge because that's what engages my brain. That's what keeps me going. Um, That's why I tend to jump from genre to genre and do wildly different things, which maybe isn't the best career move, but it's what keeps me engaged. And it's what I love about writing is knowing I can always get better. Um, And so I look at Hyde and I think I could not have written this 10 years ago. I mean, on a skill level, being able to write an omniscient third person tightly and have a large cast of characters and have them all feel like individuals, like that for sure, I could not have done that 10 years ago. But just also then the things that I'm willing to engage with, like the ideas and the concepts um, and, and, you know, the anger. I grew up in a, I grew up in a community that had very sort of rigid gender divides and anger and ambition um, were things that that girls were not supposed to access, were not supposed to demonstrate. Uh, so it took me a really long time to sort of break away from that and give myself permission to feel those things personally and then also explore them fictionally. Um, so like Hyde couldn't have existed without the Conquerors trilogy where those books were very, very much about giving myself permission to feel anger. Um, and then Hyde couldn't have existed without the Dark Sun of Elizabeth Frankenstein where I really leaned into horror and how can I make something feel terrifying? How can I make the experience of being a woman feel as claustrophobic and and treacherous as I have felt it to be many times in my life. Um, and, and that's what's so fun about, about having a long career as an author. And what I love about reading other authors who have a really long backlist is you can see the progression in, in not only skill, but in, in content and in ideas and in the things that they engage with and the ways they engage with them. You mentioned earlier that you were doing, when you were doing Hyde, that you like, you you have this idea and you put it on the back burner because you get another project and then mm-hmm. you want to go back to it and then you get another project. How do you go back? Can you go back and forth where you start writing and then you set it on a shelf and then you can, is it easy for you to come back to something like that? Um, not usually. I ha- I can't even tell you how many abandoned manuscripts I have where I will like an idea and I'll write 50, 75 pages of it and I'll either lose momentum or I will have to switch to working on something else and I literally forget about it never go back to it. And I'm okay with that. Like, it doesn't bother me. I don't view it as, as wasted time. Um, and it also shows me that I know when an idea really genuinely has teeth, when it has a soul and a reason for existing, I don't forget about it. Okay. And I do kind of feel this constant tug of, I want to get back to that. I need to get back to that. Like that story is still waiting for me. Um, and that for me is both with Hyde and Wretched Water Park, where I knew they were stories that I could tell is because they didn't, I didn't forget about them. Um, I can't work on multiple things at a time. Um, I do work very quickly and I have a lot of projects going on, but it's only ever one thing at a time. I can't split my focus. Right. I'm a very, very obsessive writer. And so um, yeah, it really is very much a, a, 
it's hard when I lose momentum, like if I'm in the middle of drafting and I have to go work on something else, it's very, very hard for me to get back into a draft. Um, but fortunately I also really like my own writing. So when I go back and I read something that I'd written 50 or 75 or hundred pages of, I'm like, this is great. Let's keep going. Um, I, I don't have that. Maybe I, you know, I don't have that, uh, that shame that some authors have of first drafts where they're like, oh, this isn't perfect yet. I'm like, this is amazing. Let's go. <laughs> That's probably a good thing to have because it yeah, gets you excited yeah. about, about work. Yeah. And, and it's not that I think that it's perfect. Um, I, you know, I do a tremendous amount of revisions on all of my books, but, but I know that my heart is still there because I just, I love getting back into it. So. When you're going through and you're writing a book, uh, what kind of, what kind of process do you have? Are you like, we've had people in the past mention like, no, I just, I just sit down and I start writing. Some people have like an outline. Mm -hmm. Some people are very linear. Some people are all over the place. Uh, what's kind of your style when you're, when you're putting it together a story or are you kind of a mix mash depending on the situation? Yeah. I mean, I always say my process is chaos. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing. I'm writing that. I'm adding that to the list. Yeah. My, my process is chaos. It's different for every book. Um, you know, different books have different means. Like for example, with the, the anti-darken books, because they were historical, I had to do a tremendous amount of research and I did have to outline those because I was hitting certain historical events and I needed to make sure that, you know, I had the timeline that I wanted and that I was hitting the things that I needed to, but that also the story made sense and was a compelling story using those events. Um, so those books took me a lot longer to write. They were maybe a three or four month draft and then obviously a lot of time in revision. Um, then you have things like The Dark Stumbles of Frankenstein, where I had the idea for a while. I had noodled around with things. And then once I actually figured out what the draft was, seven days. Um and I have actually written many drafts in a week or under, but those are usually informed by like months of thinking about the story and daydreaming about it. Um, and so then by the time I finally sit down to write, I've lived with that idea in my head for so long that it happens very, very quickly. Um, and then sometimes they just take longer. Like sometimes it'll take me a few weeks to get through a draft. Um, sometimes I'll have false starts. I'll write 40 or 50 pages. I'll realize I'm telling the story wrong. Um, I have to go back, I have to outline, I have to figure out like what I'm doing wrong. Um, Cause oftentimes as a writer, you know, something is wrong, but you can't figure out, like you don't know exactly what. Okay. Um, for example, I was recently working on my next adult book and um, I was making decent progress on it, but something was off. And then I realized it was because the main character was too similar to Mac, who's the main character of Hyde. Okay. Because for some reason I keep writing isolated, disaffected, mildly depressed main characters. I'm like, hmm, <laughs> pandemic books much. Um, and so I was like, okay, that can't be my main character in this book. How can I have a character who moves through this narrative as the narrative exists now, but in a really dynamic way that's different than the main character of Hyde because it's a very different story. Um, and so, you know, I put I pushed pause on it and it's been a few weeks and I figured out that character. Now I figured out who she is and, and how she moves through the world and how that's different. And so now I'm ready to sit down and write. <laughs> We're not going to say what the title is. Whoops. You didn't hear that. Um, fortunately I talk very fast and mumble. So you definitely did not hear nope. that. Um, that so, <laughs> so I'm ready to sit down and write my next adult, dark, supernatural <laughs> thriller. Um, because, you know, I've taken the time to think it through. Um, hopefully it will be a fast draft, but I never know. And I tend to write, I tend to write fast and short. So usually my first drafts 
are about two thirds the length of my finished draft. So a third of the draft is done in revisions. Um, and then after I finished the first draft, nobody sees it. I do two or three edits on my own before I send it to an editor. And that's part of how I go so fast is because as I'm writing, I'll realize like, oh, I need this character to make a wildly different choice in chapter two. And so I just make a note to myself that says in chapter two, this happens. And then I continue writing as though I had already made that change. Okay. Um, and so by the time I finish a draft, I already have a revision, like a revision letter to myself. And I'm able to go back and make those changes. Um, for me, drafting and revising are very, very different states of mind. Okay. And for drafting, I need to be obsessive and all immersive and I need momentum. Um, and so I don't ever interrupt a draft if I can avoid it. And so then, you know, revision is very much more perfectionism, pulling it apart, you know, which pieces are working, which pieces aren't, everything is, everything is moving parts, right? right. Like you can take something out, put something else in. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I work in very fast, very obsessive spurts. And then I, you know, a lot of times I'll go three or four months without writing anything and that's okay. Excellent. I want to mention real quick. Um, no, it doesn't have to be real quick, but I know you can't talk a whole heck of a lot about it, but you have a Star Wars book yes. coming out. Yeah. How Which was the, how were you, before we start, yeah. were you a fan of the Star oh, yeah. Wars universe? Yeah. Yeah. So I have always loved Star Wars. Um, when I was growing up, we had a laser disc player and we had the three original Star Wars movies and I would always put them on and I wanted to see Princess Leia and I wanted to see the monsters. Um, like those were my, those were my focal points in Star Wars. I'm like everything else, whatever, where are the monsters and where is Leia? Um, but I always loved them. The prequels came out, started coming out when I was in high school and it was just like so exciting to have more Star Wars content after so long. Um, I loved the new trilogy because they were the ones that I got to take my kids to in the theater. Right. Uh, so yeah, it's been, it's, you know, a lifelong, uh, lifelong love of Star Wars. Um, so a few years ago, I have several friends who write Star Wars and I talked to them. I'm like, you know, if I wanted to write a Star Wars, if, for example, I had one day off and I outlined an entire Kylo Ren novel, which I did, um, <laughs> who would I talk to? And so I was able to um, come into contact with some of the um, some of the story group people we had a great phone call. They were like, you know, we're not really looking for a Kylo Ren novel right now. Who are other characters that you love? Um, and they were like, great. Well, thank you so much for reaching out to us. Um, we, we plan stories in chunks. So if something comes up that we think you'd be a good fit for, we'll let you know. And then six months passed and then a year passed and then 18 months passed. And so I was kind of like, oh, well, they decided that I wasn't the right fit. That's OK. Like, I'm glad that I put myself out there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, as I said before, I'm a big fan of like advocating for yourself and advertising the things that you love and the things that you're interested in right. and the things that you want to do because you never know what will come of it. Um, and so, yeah, I didn't get Star Wars and it was fine because um, I loved the authors that they chose. I thought they were doing really exciting, interesting things with their storytelling. Um, and then last summer, three and a half years after that phone call, I got an email asking if I would be interested in writing a book about uh, Teenage Joey on Kenobi. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> because like I had never I didn't even list him because there was no part of me that thought that I could potentially write. Um, Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? Right, such a pivotal character. Such a pivotal character. Um, and I I did not have time 
absolutely did not have time. My middle grade series is on a six month release schedule. So just constantly writing and revising those. I had my adult career kicking off, um, but I could not say no. Right. And so, so yeah, I fit it in. Um, it was a really fun process. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about it because I don't know how much yeah. I'm supposed to talk about it, but yeah. it was a lot. Um, there was a lot more creative freedom than I expected there to be. Um, it was I was going to ask expensive. you about that. Yeah, yeah. Because we had, we had Delilah Stassen on not long ago talking about her Star Wars experience yeah. and all of the, I can't talk about things that she had to go through as well. So I, yeah. I can totally understand that. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, there was a lot more creative freedom than I expected it, there to be. Um, writing those books, it, writing those types of books is, is really different emotionally though, because whenever I'm writing one of my own books, I'm writing for myself first and foremost. But, you know, when I was writing Slayer or when I was writing Padawan, I am very aware that Obi-Wan Kenobi is a figure that has loomed large in millions and millions and hundreds of millions of imaginations for decades, right? right. I am so aware of how much Star Wars means to so many people because it means that much to me too. And so there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of psychological pressure that comes with writing for these worlds that you love, that you know other people love. And, and you know, with my own books, I'm like, I hope there's an audience out there for this. And with Star Wars, you know there's an audience out there for this. You just hope that you um, are doing right by them, but you still have to tell a story with integrity, right? right. Um, so yeah, it was, a, it was a really, it was a really interesting, fun process. Um, it, that one definitely did, you know, I had to outline it before because I had to get everything approved. Right. Um, and then trying to figure out a space for a story within so much storytelling, right. figure out a space for a new story that feels like it's always been there. Um, it's really hard, but it's also my favorite part of doing retellings and working with licensed properties because it's such a fun challenge to figure out how to make this story feel like it was always part of Obi-Wan's journey. Right. You just didn't know it yet. Um, so yeah, I'm super proud of it. I'm super excited for it to come out. Little bit terrified, not going to lie. Um, Cause you know, I don't want to let anybody down. <laughs> I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be great. Thank you. Yeah. I, yeah. I and then, you know, it has given me a lot of cred among my 34 nieces and nephews. Um, so if nothing else, I have that. So what you're saying is this is a book all your kids are actually going to read. Oh, my kids won't. No. <laughs> <laughs> but my nieces and nephews will. Okay. Uh, well, the um, when does Padawan come out? I know it's already uh, for pre-order because I saw it. Yeah. Pre-order. Yeah, um, it I think comes out on July twenty sixth or twenty seventh, whatever the whatever the Tuesday is. Okay. Um, I think it's July twenty sixth. Okay, awesome. Yeah. And Hyde yeah. comes out in May. Hyde comes out May twenty fourth, and Wretched Water Park comes out June seventh. So we just just lining them up. Boom, 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 boom. And yeah. is Hyde Hyde is the only adult one? The other two are young yes. adults. So Hyde or is adult. Middle grade. Red Water Park is middle grade. So we're the okay. eight to twelve year olds. Um, you know, it's fun to read as an adult too. It's yeah. very tough. It's very. Well, most of my favorite books are young adult books. Let's right? be honest. Let's be honest. Yeah, yeah. And then Padawan is young adult. So okay. I know okay. I'm going to get reviews saying this felt like a young adult novel. Surprise! It, it is. is. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Now you have an event coming up. You're going to be at Mysterious Galaxy Bookstore on yes. May 24th. Yes. Um, and that's going to be at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Uh, mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that event and what 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 it's is it a, just a normal signing? Is there a bigger overall event for that? 
Yeah. So that will be my um, my launch event for Hyde. Okay. So it'll be the first time that I talk about Hyde. It's on the release day. It will also be simultaneously live broadcast through Mysterious Galaxy. So wherever you are, you'll be able to tune in. Um, I give great event, so you should. Um, and and That's yeah, dot com for people listening to the to the podcast. Yes. And if you want any of my books signed or personalized, you can always order through Mysterious Galaxy because I do sign and, and personalize every pre-order through them. So Hyde, Wretched Water Park, Padawan, um, I will sign and personalize all of those um, whenever they come out, so. That's awesome, awesome, awesome. And that's in San Diego, I believe, correct? Yes. Awesome. Yeah. You are on Twitter at Kirsten White, mm -hmm. Instagram at author Kirsten White. Uh, people can find your website at kirstenwhite.com correct? Yep. All correct information. The internet didn't lie to me today. Yes. I did <laughs> once meet the girl who got Kirsten White on Instagram. And I was like, oh, but she was so cute. She was this cute teenager. I was like, I can't even be mad. You just be like, you better start buying my books. <laughs> she came to one of my book events. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. All right, friends and enemies listening to the podcast, April 18th, our next episode, we're going to have Audible Hall of Fame narrator Luke Daniels. He's going to be joining us. His voice has narrated over 600 books, including many of the authors we've had right here on the show, including Kevin Hearn, Scott Mayer, Justin Leslie, Delilah S. Dawson, and more in the future, I am sure. So that's going to be April 18th. Make sure to join us for that. It's going to be great. May 2nd, we're going to have Rhiannon Held will be joining us, also known as RZ Held. She's the author of the Silver Series, the Amsterdam Series, and has been featured in multiple anthologies. You can also find her on Twitch's Dungeon Scrawlers D&D game. Um, so that's going to be May 2nd. So make sure to follow and rate and review us. It helps get us more eyes on us and more eyes on our guests. So thank you very much for Kirsten White. I am Nick. Have a great evening and thank you for listening to Epic Realms. Well, there you are. I hope you enjoyed yourselves. And I do hope that you come back and join us again for Epic Realms. <laughs> <laughs>